1: This is Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Welcome once again to our audio nights, or going on Thursday, apologies again for that. Hopefully you will enjoy this story. It is I'm really actually quite proud of this. We have got none other than Bruce Sterling's story. We see things differently. So I would really appreciate if you could drop some emails in, tell us what you thought of it. Is it okay? If you would also be kind enough to, you know, if you've got a blog mentioned on our on your blogs, just say, you know, Starship Sofa's putting out some great audio. Last week, you know, we did the David Bryn one, that went down the storm. You know, that was like a Hugo winner. 1985, And to get a hold of that, that was just amazing. So hopefully you will like this story, or if you don't like it, drop us a line as well, tell us what you think. Today's narration is by James Campanella again. I forgot to put his links on the site last week, so go over there. You will have links to his website, which will take you to some more free stories on there. Let us know what you think of James' is reading. So without further ado, the Starship Sofa presents Bruce Sterling. We see things differently. This was the Jahaliya,
2: the land of ignorance. This was America, the great Satan, the arsenal of imperialism, the bankroller of Zionism, the bastion of neocolonialism, the home of Hollywood and blonde sluts in black nylon, The land of rocket-equipped F-15s that slashed across God's sky in godless pride. The land of nuclear-powered global navies with cannon that fired shells as large as cars. They have forgotten that they used to shoot us, shell us, insult us, and equip our enemies. They have no memory, the Americans, and no history. Wind sweeps through them, and the past vanishes. They are like dead leaves. I flew into Miami on a winter afternoon. The jet banked over a tangle of empty highways. Then a large, dead section of the city. A ghetto, perhaps. In our final approach, we passed a coal-burning power plant, reflected in the canal. For a moment, I mistook it for a mosque its tall smokestacks slender as minarets, a mask for the American dynamo. I had trouble with my cameras at customs. The customs officer was a grimy-looking American, white with hair the color of clay. He squinted at my passport. That's an awful lot of film, Mr. Kuttab, he said. Kutab, I said, smiling. Sayid Kuthab, call me Charlie. Journalist, huh? He looked unhappy. It seemed that I owed substantial import duties on my Japanese cameras, as well as my numerous rolls of Pakistani color film. He invited me into a small back office to discuss it. Money changed hands. I departed with my papers in order. The airport was half full, mostly prosperous Venezuelans and Cubans with the haunted look of men pursuing sin. I caught a taxi outside, a tiny vehicle like a motorcycle wrapped in glass. The cabbie, an ancient black man, stowed my luggage in the cab's trailer. Within the cab's cramped confines, we were soon unwilling intimates. The cabbie's breath smelled of sweetened alcohol. You Iranian? the cabbie asked. Arab. We respect Iranians around here. We really do, the cabbie insisted. So do we, I said. We fought them on the Iraqi front for years. Yeah, said the cabbie uncertainly. Seems to me I heard about that. How'd that end up? The Shiite holy cities were ceded to Iran. The Ba'athist regime is dead, and Iraq is now part of the Arab Caliphate. My words made no impression upon him and I had known it before I spoke. This is the land of ignorance. They know nothing about us, the Americans. After all this, and they still know nothing whatsoever. Well, who's got more money these days? The cabby asked. Y'all or the Iranians? The Iranians have heavy industry, I said. But we Arabs tip better. The Kabi smiled. It is very easy to buy Americans. The mention of money brightens them like a shot of drugs. It is not just poverty. They were always like this, even when they were rich. It is the effect of spiritual emptiness. A terrible, grinding emptiness in the very guts of the West, which no amount of Coca-Cola seems able to fill. We roll down gloomy streets toward the hotel, Miami street streetlights were subsidized by commercial enterprises. It was another way of, as they say, shrugging the burden of essential services from the exhausted backs of the taxpayers and onto the far sturdier shoulders of the peddlers of aspirin, sticky sweetened drinks and cosmetics. Their billboards gleamed bluely under the harsh lights encased in bulletproof glass. It reminded me so strongly of Soviet agitprop that I had a sudden jarring sense of displacement, as if I were being sold Lenin and Engels and Marx in handy jumbo size. The Kabi wondering perhaps about his tip, offered to exchange dollars for rials at black market rates. I declined politely, having already done this in Cairo. The lining of my coat was stuffed with crisp Reagan thousand-dollar bills. I also had several hundred in pocket change and an extensive credit line at the Islamic Bank of Jerusalem. I foresaw no difficulties. Outside the hotel, I gave the ancient driver a pair of fifties. Another very old man of Hispanic descent took my bags on a trolley. I registered under the gaze of a very old woman. Like all American women... She was dressed in a way intended to provoke lust. In the young, this technique works admirably, as proved by America's unhappy history of sexually transmitted plague. In the very old, it only provokes sad disgust. I smiled on the horrible old woman and paid in advance. I was rewarded by a double handful of glossy brochures promoting local casinos, strip joints and bars. The room was adequate. This had once been a fine hotel. The air conditioning was quiet, and both hot and cold water worked well. A wide flat screen covering most of one wall offered dozens of channels of television. My wristwatch buzzed quietly, its program dial indicating the direction of Mecca. I took the rug from my luggage and spread it before the window. I cleansed my face, my hands, My feet. Then I knelt before the darkening chaos of Miami, many stories below. I assumed the eight positions, bowing carefully, sinking with gratitude into deep meditation. I forced away the stress of jet lag, the innate tension and fear of a believer among enemies. Prayer completed, I changed my clothing, put aside my dark Western business suit. I assumed denim jeans, a long-sleeved shirt, and photographer's vest. I slipped my press card, my passport, my health cards into the vest's zippered pockets and draped the cameras around myself. I then returned to the lobby downstairs to await the arrival of the American rock star. He came on schedule, even slightly early. There was only a small crowd as the Rockstar's organization had sought confidentiality. A train of seven monstrous buses pulled into the hotel's lot, their whale-like sides gleaming with brushed aluminum. They bore Massachusetts license plates. I walked out on the tarmac and began photographing. All seven buses carried the Rockstar's favored insignia, the thirteen-starred blue field of the early American flag. The buses pulled up with military precision, forming a wagon-train fortress across a large section of the weedy, broken tarmac. Folding doors hissed open, and a swarm of road crew piled out into the circle of buses. Men and women alike wore baggy fatigues, covered with buttoned pockets and block-shaped streaks of urban camouflage, red brick, asphalt black, and concrete grey. Dark blue shoulder patches showed the 13-size circle. Working efficiently, without haste, they erected large satellite dishes on the roofs of two buses. The buses were soon linked together in formation, shaped barriers of woven wire securing the gaps between each nose and tail. The machines seemed to sit breathing with the stoked up Leviathan air of steam locomotives. A dozen identically dressed crewmen broke from the buses and departed in a group from the hotel. Within their midst, shielded by their bodies, was the rock star, Tom Boston. The broken outlines of their camouflaged fatigues made them seem to blur into a single mass, like a herd of moving zebras. I followed them. They vanished quickly within the hotel. One crewwoman tarried outside. I approached her. She was hauling a bulky piece of metal luggage on trolley wheels. It was a newspaper vending machine. She set it beside three other machines at the hotel's entrance. It was the Boston Organization's propaganda paper, Poor Richards. I drew near. Ah, the latest issue, I said. May I
3: have one? It will cost five dollars,
2: she said in painstaking English. To my surprise, I recognized her as Boston's wife. Valya Plisetskaya, I said with pleasure, and handed her a five dollar nickel. My name is Said. My friends call me Charlie. She looked about her. A small crowd already gathered at the buses, kept at a distance by the Boston crew. Others clustered under the hotel's green and white awning.
3: Who are you with?
2: she said. Al Haram. "'of Cairo, an Arabic newspaper.'
3: "'You're not political?'
2: she said. "'I shook my head in amusement at this typical show of Soviet paranoia. "'Here's my press card.' "'I showed her the tangle of Arabic. "'I am here to cover Tom Boston, the Boston phenomenon.' "'She squinted.
3: "'Tom is big in Cairo these days? "'Muslims, yes? "'Down on rock and roll?'
2: We're not all ayatollahs, I said, smiling up at her. She was very tall. Many still listen to Western pop music. They ignore the advice of their betters. They used to rock all night in Leningrad, despite the party. Isn't that so?
3: You know about us Russians, do you, Charlie?
2: She handed me my paper, watching me with cool suspicion. No, I can't keep up, I said. Like Lebanon in the old days, too many factions. I followed her through the swinging glass doors of the hotel. Valentina Plisetskaya was a broad-cheeked Slav with glacial blue eyes and hair the color of corn tassels. She was a childless woman in her thirties, starved as thin as a girl. She played saxophone in Boston's band. She was a native of Moscow, but had survived its destruction. She had been on tour with her jazz band when the Afghan Martyrs Front detonated a nuclear bomb. I tagged after her. I was interested in the view of another foreigner. What do you think of the Americans these days, I asked her. We waited beside the elevator.
3: Are you recording?
2: She said. No, I'm a print journalist. I know you don't like tapes, I said.
3: We like tapes fine
2: she said, staring down at
3: me. As long as they are ours.
2: The elevator was sluggish.
3: You want to know what I think, Charlie? I think Americans are fucked. Not as bad as Soviets, but fucked anyway. What do you think?
2: Oh, I said, American gloom and doom is an old story. At Al-Aram, we are more interested in the signs of American resurgence. That's the big angle now. That's why I'm here. She looked at me with remote sarcasm.
3: Aren't you a little afraid they will beat the shit out of you? They're not happy, the Americans. Not sweet and easy going like before.
2: I wanted to ask her how sweet the CIA had been when their bomb killed half the Iranian government in 1981. Instead, I shrugged. There's no substitute for a man on the ground. That's what my editors say. The elevator shut it open. May I come up with you?
3: I won't stop you.
2: We stepped in.
3: But they won't let you in to see Tom.
2: They will if you ask them to, Mrs. Boston.
3: I'm pleased at Skaya.
2: She said, fluffing her yellow hair.
3: See, si novel.
2: It was the old story of the so-called liberated Western woman. They call the simple, modest clothing of Islam bondage while they spend countless hours and millions of dollars painting themselves. They grow their nails like talons, cram their feet into high heels, strap their breasts and hips into spandex, all for the sake of male lust. It baffles the imagination. Naturally, I told her nothing of this, but only smiled. I'm afraid I will be a pest, I said. I have a room in this hotel. Some time I will see your husband. I must. My editors demand it. The doors opened. We stepped into the hall of the 14th floor. Boston's entourage had taken over the entire floor. Men in fatigues and sunglasses guarded the hallway. One of them had a trained dog.
3: Your paper is big, is it?
2: The woman said. Biggest in Cairo. Millions of readers, I said. We still read in the Caliphate. State-controlled television, she muttered. Worse than corporations, I asked? I saw what CPS said about Tom Boston. She hesitated, and I continued to prod. A Luddite fanatic, am I right? A rock demagogue?
3: Give me your own number. I did this. I'll call,
2: she said, striding away down the corridor. I almost expected the guards to salute her as she passed so regally. But they made no move, their eyes invisible behind the glasses. They looked old and rather tired, but with the alert relaxation of professionals. They had the look of former Secret Service bodyguards. The city-colored fatigues were baggy enough to hide almost any amount of weaponry. I returned to my room. I ordered Japanese food from room service and ate it. Wine had been used in its cooking. "'but I am not a prude in these matters. "'It was now time for the day's last prayer, "'though my body still attuned to Cairo did not believe it. "'My devotions were broken by a knocking at the door. "'I opened it. "'It was another of Boston's staff, "'a small black woman whose hair had been treated. "'It had a nylon sheen. "'It looked like the plastic hair on a child's doll. "'You Charlie?' "'Yes.' "'Vaya says you want to see the gig. See us set up? Got you a backstage pass?' "'Thank you very much.' I let her clip the plastic-coated pass to my vest. She looked past me into the room and saw my prayer rug at the window. "'What you doing in there? Praying?' "'Yes.' "'Weird,' she said. "'You coming or what?' I followed my nameless benefactor to the elevator. Down at ground level, the crowd had swollen. Two hired security guards stood outside the glass doors, refusing admittance to anyone without a room key. The girl ducked and ploughed through the crowd with sudden headlong force, like an American football player. I struggled in her wake, the gawkers, pickpockets, and autograph hounds closing at my heels. The crowd was liberally sprinkled with repulsive derelicts one sees so often in America. Those without homes, without family, without charity. I was surprised at the age of the people. For a rock star's crowd, one expects dizzy teenage girls and libidinous young street toughs that pursue them. There were many of those, but more of another type. Tired, footsore people with crow's feet and graying hair. Men and women in their thirties and forties, with a shabby, crushed look. Unemployed, obviously, and with time on their hands to cluster around anything that resembled hope. We walked without hurry to the fortress circle of buses. A rear guard of Boston's kept the onlookers at bay. Two of the buses were already unlinked from the others and under full steam. I followed the black woman up perforated steps and into the bowels of one of the shining machines. She called brief greetings to the others already inside. The air held the sharp reek of cleaning fluid. Neat elastic cords strapped down stacks of amplifiers, stenciled instrument cases, wheeled dollies of black rubber and crisp yellow pine. The thirteen-starred circle marked everything, stamped or spray-painted, a methane-burning steam generator at the back of the bus next to a tall crash-proof rack of high-pressure fuel tanks. We skirted the equipment and joined the others in a narrow row of second-hand airplane seats. We buckled ourselves in. I sat next to the doll-haired girl. The bus surged into motion. It's very clean, I said to her. I expected something a bit wilder on a rock-and-roll bus. "'Maybe in Egypt,' she said with a distinctive decision that Egypt was in the Dark Ages. "'We don't have the luxury to screw around. Not now.' I decided not to tell her that Egypt as a nation-state no longer existed. "'American pop culture is a very big industry.' "'Biggest we have left,' she said. "'And if you Muslims weren't so pimpy about it, "'maybe we could pull down a few reals and get out of debt.' "'We buy a great deal.' From America, I told her. Grain. And timber. And minerals. That's third world stuff. We're not your farm. She looked at the spotless floor. Look, our industries suck. Everybody knows that. So we sell entertainment. Except where there's media barriers. And even then the fucking video pirates rip us off. We see things differently, I said. America ruled the global media for decades. To us, it's cultural imperialism. We have many talented musicians in the Arab world. Have you ever heard them? Can't afford it, she said crisply. We spent all our money saving the Persian Gulf from commies.
0: The global threat of red totalitarianism, said the
2: heavy-set man in the seat next
0: to Dalhair. The others laughed grimly.
2: Oh, I said. Actually, it was Zionism that concerned us,
0: when there was Zionism. I can't believe the hate shit I see about America, said the heavy man. You know how much money we gave away to people? Just gave away for nothing? Billions and billions. Peace Corps, development aid, for decades. Any disaster, anywhere, and we fell all over ourselves to give food Medicine. And the Russians go, and the whole world turns against us, like we were monsters. Moscow, said another crewman, shaking his shaggy head. You know, there are still motherfuckers who think we Americans killed Moscow. They think we gave a bomb to those Afghani terrorists. It had to come from somewhere, I said. No, man. We wouldn't do that to them. No, man. Things were going great between us. Rock for detente. I was at that gig.
2: We drove to Miami's Memorial Coliseum. It was an ambitious structure, left half-completed when the American banking system collapsed. We entered double doors at the back, wheeling the equipment along dusty corridors. The Coliseum's interior was skeletal. Inside it was clammy and cavernous. A stage, a concrete floor, bare steel arched high overhead, with crudely bracket-mounted stage lights. Large sections of that bizarre American parody of grass, astroturf, had been dragged before the stage. The itchy green fur, still lined with yard marks from some forgotten stadium, was almost indestructible. At second-hand rates, it was much cheaper than carpeting. The crew worked with smooth precision, setting up amplifiers, spindly mic stands, a huge high-tech drum kit with the clustered shiny look of an oil refinery. Others checked lights, flicking blue and yellow spots across the stage. At the public entrances, two crewmen from a second bus erected metal detectors, for illicit cameras, recorders, or handguns, especially handguns. Two attempts had already been made on Boston's life, one at the Chicago Freedom Festival, when Chicago's mayor was wounded at Boston's side. For a moment to understand it, I mounted the empty stage and stood before Boston's microphone. I imagined the crowd before me, 10,000 souls. 20,000 eyes. Under that attention I realized every motion was amplified. To move my arm would be like moving 10,000 arms, my every word like the voice of thousands. I felt like a Nasser, a Gaddafi, a Saddam Hussein. This was the nature of secular power, industrial power. It was the West that invented it. That invented Hitler, the gutter orator turned trampler of nations. That invented Stalin, the man they called Genghis Khan with a telephone. The media pop star, the politician. Was there any difference anymore? Not in America. It was all a question of seizing eyes, of seizing attention. Attention is wealth in an age of mass media. "'Center stage is more important than armies.' The last unearthly moans and squeals of soundcheck faded. The Miami crowd began to filter into the Coliseum. They looked livelier than the desperate searchers that had pursued Boston to his hotel. America was still a wealthy country by most standards. The professional classes had kept much of their prosperity, there were those legions of lawyers, for instance, that secular priesthood that had done so much to drain America's once-vaunted enterprise, and their associated legions of state bureaucrats. They were instantly recognizable, the cut of their suits, the tell-tale pocket telephones proclaiming their status. What were they looking for here? Had they never read Boston's propaganda paper with its bitter condemnation of everything they stood for, with its fierce attacks on the legislative litigative complex, its demands for sweeping reforms, was it possible they failed to take him seriously? I joined the crowd, mingling, listening to conversations. At the doors, Boston cadres were cutting ticket prices for those who showed voter registrations. Those who showed unemployment cards got in for even less. The prosperous Americans stood in little knots of besieged gentility, frightened of the others, yet curious, smiling. There was a liveliness in the destitute. Brighter clothing, knotted kerchiefs at the elbows, cheap Korean boots of iridescent cloth. Many wore tri hats some with a cockade of red, white, and blue, or the circle of thirteen stars. This was rock and roll, I realized. That was the secret. They had all grown up on it, these Americans, even the richer ones. To them, the sixty-year tradition of rock music seemed as ancient as the pyramids. It had become a Jerusalem, a Mecca of American tribes. The crowd milled, waiting, and Boston let them wait. At the back of the crowd, Boston crewmen did a brisk business in starred souvenir shirts, programs, and tapes. Heat and tension mounted, and people began to sweat. The stage remained dark. I bought the souvenir items and studied them. They talked about cheap computers a phone company owned by its workers, a free database, neighborhood co-ops that could buy unmilled grain by the ton. Attention Miami, read one brochure in letters of dripping red. It named the ten largest global corporations and meticulously listed every subsidiary doing business in Miami with its address, its phone number, the percentage of income shipped to banks in Europe and Japan. Each list went on for pages, nothing else. To Boston's audience, nothing else was necessary. The house lights darkened. A frightened animal roar rose from the crowd. A single spot lit Tom Boston, stenciling him against the darkness. My he said a funereal hush followed the crowd strained for each word boston smirked my
1: fellow
2: it was a clever microphone digitised a small synthesizer in itself my goodness. the words vanished in a sudden soaring wail well of feedback The sound of Boston's voice suddenly leaping out of all human context, becoming something sha
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
4: Let's get this dinner
2: party started. Battering. Superhuman. The effect was bone-chilling. It passed all barriers. It seeped directly into the skin. The blood. Tom Jefferson died broke, he shouted. It was the title of his first song. Stage lights. Flashed up and hell broke its gates. Was it a song at all, this strange volcanic creation? There was a melody loose in it somewhere, pursued by Plisetskaya's saxophone, but the sheer volume and impact hurled through its audience like a sheet of flame. I had never before heard anything so loud. What Cairo's renegade set called rock and roll paled to nothing, "'beside this invisible hurricane. "'At first it seemed raw noise, "'but that was only a kind of flooring, "'a merciless grinding foundation "'below the rising architectures of sound. "'Technology did it, "'a piercing, soaring, digitized, "'utter clarity of perfect cybernetic acoustics "'adjusting for each echo a hundred times a second. Boston played a glass harmonica, an instrument invented by the early American genius Benjamin Franklin. The harmonica was made of carefully tuned glass discs, rotating on a spindle, and played by streaking a wet fingertip across each moving edge. It was the sound of pure crystal, seemingly sourceless, of tooth-aching purity. The famous Western musician, Wolfgang Mozart, had composed for the Franklin harmonica in the days of its novelty, but legends said that its players went mad, their nerves shredded by its clarity of sound. It was a legend Boston was careful to exploit. He played the machine sparingly with the air of a magician, of a Solomon unbottling demons. I was glad of his spare use, for its sound was so beautiful that it stung the brain. Boston threw aside his hat. Long, coiled hair spilled free. Boston was what Americans called black. At least, he was often referred to as black, though no one seemed certain. He was no darker than myself. The beat rose up. Strong animal heaving. Boston stalked across the stage as if on springs, clutching his microphone, he began to sing. The song concerned Thomas Jefferson, a famous American president of the 18th century. Jefferson was a political theorist who wrote revolutionary manifestos and favored a decentralist mode of government. The song, however, dealt with the relations of Jefferson and a black concubine in his household. He had several children by this woman, who were a source of great shame, due to the odd legal code of the period. Legally, they were his slaves, and it was only at the end of his life, when he was in great poverty, that Jefferson set them free. It was a story whose pathos makes little sense to a Muslim. But Boston's audience, knowing themselves, Jefferson's children, took it to heart. The heat became stifling. A massed body swaying in rhythm. The next song began in a torrent of punishing noise. Frantic hysteria seized the crowd. Their bodies spasmed with each beat. The shaman Boston seemed to scourge them. It was a fearsome song called The Whites of Their Eyes after an American war cry. He sang of a tactic of battle to wait until the enemy comes close enough so that you can meet his eyes. Frighten him with your conviction, and then shoot him point-blank. The chorus harked again and again to the cowards of the long kill, a Boston slogan condemning those whose abstract power structures let them murder without ever seeing pain. Three more songs followed, one of them slower, the others battering the audience like iron rods. Boston stalked like a madman, his clothing dark with sweat. My heart spasmed as heavy bass notes filled with dark murderous power surged through my ribs. I moved away from the heat to the fringe of the crowd, feeling light-headed and sick. I had not expected this. I had expected a political spokesman, but instead it seemed I was assaulted by the very voice of the West the voice of a society drunk with raw power, maddened by the grinding roar of machines. It filled me with terrified awe. To think that once the West had held us in its armoured hands. It had treated Islam like a natural resource, its invincible armies ploughing through the lands of the faithful like bulldozers. The West had chopped our world up into colonies and smiled upon us, With its awful, schizophrenic perfidy, it told us to separate God and state, to separate mind and body, to separate reason and faith. It had torn us apart. I stood shaking as the first set ended. The band vanished backstage, and a single figure approached the microphone. I recognized him as a famous American television comedian who had abandoned his own career to join Boston. The man began to joke and clown, his antics seeming to soothe the crowd, which hooted with laughter. This intermission was a wise move on Boston's part, I thought. The level of pain, of intensity, had become unbearable. It struck me then how much Boston was like the great Khomeini. Boston, too, had the persona of the Man of Sorrows the sufferer after justice, the ascetic among corruption, the battler against odds, and the air of the mystic, the adept, at least as far as such a thing was possible in America. I thought of this, and deep fear struck me once again. I walked through the gates to the Colosseum's outer hall, seeking air and room to think. Others had come out too, They leaned against the wall, men and women, with the look of wrung-out mops. Some smoked cigarettes, others argued over brochures, others simply sat with palsied grins. Still others wept. These disturbed me the most, for these were the ones whose souls seemed stung and opened. Khomeini made men weep like that, "'tearing aside despair like a bandage from a burn. "'I walked down the hall watching them, making mental notes. "'I stopped by a woman in dark glasses and a trim business suit. "'She leaned against the wall, shaking, "'her face beneath the glasses slick with silent tears. "'Something about the precision of her styled hair, "'her cheekbones, struck a memory. "'I stood beside her, waiting.' and recognition came. Hello, I said. We have something in common, I think. You've been covering the Boston tour. For CBS. She glanced at me once and away. I don't know you. You're Marjorie Kale, the correspondent. She drew in a breath. You're mistaken. Luddite fanatic, I said lightly. Rock demagogue? Go away, she said. Why not talk about it? I'd like to know your point of view. Go away,
3: you nasty little man.
2: I returned to the crowd inside. The comedian was now reading at length from the American Bill of Rights, his voice thick with sarcasm. Freedom of advertising, he said. Freedom of global network television conglomerates. Right to a speedy and public trial to be repeated until our lawyers win. A well-regulated militia being necessary, citizens will be issued orbital lasers and aircraft carriers. No one was laughing. The crowd was in an ugly mood when Boston reappeared. Even the well-dressed ones now seemed surly and militant, not recognizing themselves as the enemy. Like the Shah's soldiers who at last refused to fire, who threw themselves sobbing at Khomeini's feet. You all know this one, Boston said. With his wife he raised a banner, one of the first flags of the American Revolution. It bore a coiled snake, a Native American viper, with the legend, Don't Tread on Me. A sinister, scaly rattling poured from the depths of a synthesizer, merging with the crowd's roar of recognition, and a sprung, loping rhythm broke loose. Boston edged back and forth at the stage's rim, his eyes fixed, his long neck swaying. He shook himself, like a man saved from drowning, and leaned into the microphone. We know you own us. You step upon us. We feel the onus. But here's a bonus. Today I see. So, enemy, don't tread on me. Don't tread on me. Simple words, fitting each beat with all the harsh precision of the English language. A chant of raw hostility. The crowd took it up. This was the hatred. The humiliation of a society brought low. Americans. Somewhere within them conviction still burned. The conviction they had always had that they were the only real people on our planet the chosen ones the light of the world the last best hope of mankind the free and the brave the crown of creation they would have killed for him i knew some day they would i was called to boston suite at 2 o'clock that morning i had shaved and showered Dashed on the hotel's complimentary cologne. I wanted to smell like an American. Boston's guards frisked me carefully and thoroughly. Outside the elevator, I submitted with good grace. Boston's suite was crowded. It had the air of an election victory. There were many politicians, sipping glasses of bubbling alcohol, laughing, shaking hands. Miami's mayor was there, with half his city council. I recognized a young woman senator, speaking urgently into her pocket phone, her large freckled breasts on display in an evening gown. I mingled, listening. Men spoke of Boston's ability to raise funds, of the growing importance of his endorsement. More of Boston's guards stood in corners, arms folded, eyes hidden, their faces stony. A black man distributed lapel buttons with the face of Martin Luther King on a black ground of red and white stripes. The wall-sized television played a tape of the first moon landing. The sound had been turned off, and people all over the world, in the garb of the 1960s, mouthed silently at the camera, their eyes shining. It was not until four o'clock that I finally met with the star himself. The party had broken up by then. The politicians politely ushered out. Their vows of undying loyalty met with discreet smiles. Boston was in a back bedroom with his wife and a pair of aides. Said, he said, and shook my hand. In person he looked smaller, older, his hybrid face with stage makeup beginning to peel. Dr. Boston, I said. He laughed freely. "Saeed, my friend, you'll ruin my street fucking credibility. I want to tell the story as I see it, I said. Then you'll have to tell it to me, he said, and turned briefly to an aide. He dictated in a low staccato voice, not losing his place in our conversation, simply loosing a burst of thought. Let us be frank. Before I showed an interest, you were ready to sell the ship for scrap iron. This is not an era for supertankers. They are dead tech. Smokestack era garbage. Reconsider my offer. The secretary pounded keys. Boston looked at me again, returning the searchlight of his attention. You plan to buy a supertanker, I said? I wanted an aircraft carrier, he said smiling. They're all in mothballs, but the feds frown on selling nuke power plants to private citizens.
3: We will make the tanker into a floating stadium,
2: please said put in. She sat slumped in a padded chair, wearing satin lounge pajamas. A half-filled ashtray on the chair's arm reeked of strong tobacco. Ever been inside a tanker? Boston said.
0: Huge. Great acoustics.
2: He sat suddenly on the sprawling bed and pulled off his snakeskin boots. So, Said, tell me the story of yours. You graduated magna cum laude from Rutgers with a doctorate in political science, I said, in five years. That doesn't count, Boston said, yawning behind his hand. That was before rock and roll beat my brains out. You ran for state office in Massachusetts, I said. You lost a close race. Two years later, you were touring with your first band, Swamp Fox. You were an immediate success. You became involved in political fundraising, recruiting your friends in the music industry. You started your own record label. You helped organize Rock for Detente, where you met your wife-to-be. Your romance was front-page news on both continents. Record sales soared. You left out the first time I got shot at, Boston said. That's more interesting. Vale and I are old hat by now. He paused, then burst out at the second secretary. I urge you once again not to go public. You will find yourselves vulnerable to a leveraged buyout. I told you that Evans is an agent of Marubeni. If he brings your precious plant down around your ears, don't come crying to me. February 1998, I said. An anti-communist zealot fired on your bus. You're a big fan, Saeed. Why are you afraid of multinationals, I said. That was the American preference, wasn't it? Global trade? Global economics? We screwed up, Boston said. Things got out of hand. Out of American hands, you mean? We used our companies as tools for development, Boston said, with the patience of a man instructing a child. But then our lovely friends in South America refused to pay their debts, and our staunch allies in Europe and Japan signed the Geneva Economic Agreement and decided to crash the dollar. And our friends in the Arab countries decided not to be countries anymore, but one almighty Caliphate. And just for good measure, they pulled all their oil money out of our banks and into Islamic ones. How could we compete? They were holy banks and our banks pay interest, which is a sin, I understand. He paused, his eyes glittering, and fluffed curls from his neck. And all that time we were already in a hock to our fucking ears, to pay for being the world's policeman. So the world betrayed your country, I said. Why? He shook his head. Isn't it obvious? Who needs St. George when the dragon is dead? Some Afghani fanatics scraped together enough plutonium for a big one, and they blew the dragon's fucking head off. And the rest of the body is still convulsing ten years later. We bled ourselves white competing against Russia which was stupid. But we'd won. With two giants, the world trembles. One giant, and the midges can drag it down. So that's what happened. They took us out. That's all. They own us. It sounds very simple, I said. He showed annoyance for the first time. Valya says you've read our newspapers. I'm not telling you anything new. Should I lie about it? Look at the figures, for Christ's sake. The EEC and Japanese use their companies for money pumps. They're sucking us dry, deliberately. You don't look stupid, Saeed. You know very well what's happening to us. Anyone in the third world does. You mentioned Christ, I said. You believe in him. Boston rocked back onto his elbows and grinned. Do you? Of course. He is one of our prophets. We call him Isa. Boston looked cautious. I never stand between a man and his God. He paused. We have a lot of respect for the Arabs, truly. What they've accomplished. Breaking free from the world economic system. Returning to authentic local tradition. You see the parallels? Yes, I said. I smiled sleepily and covered my mouth as I yawned. Jet lag. Your pardon, please. These are only questions my editors would want me to ask. If I were not an admirer, a fan as you say, I would not have this assignment. He smiled and looked at his wife. Please lit another cigarette and leaned back, looking skeptical. Boston grinned. So the sparring's over, Charlie? I have every record you've made, I said. This is not a job for hatchets. I paused, weighing my words. I still believe that our caliph is a great man. I support the Islamic resurgence. I am Muslim, but I think like many others that we have gone a bit too far in closing every window to the West. Rock and roll is a third world music at heart. Don't you agree? Sure, Boston said, closing his eyes. Do you know the first words spoken in independent Zimbabwe, right after they ran up the flag? No. He spoke blindly, savoring the words. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Marley and the Wailers. You admire him. Comes with the territory, said Boston, flipping a coil of hair. He had a black mother, a white father. And You? Oh, both my parents were shameless mongrels like myself, Boston said. I'm a second generation nothing in particular.
0: An American.
2: He sat up, nothing his hands, looking tired. You going to stay with the tour a while, Charlie? He spoke to a secretary.
0: Get me a Kleenex.
2: The woman rose. Till Philadelphia, I said. Like Marjorie Kale. Please at Skya Blue Smoke, frowning. You spoke to that woman? Of course. About the concert. What did the bitch say? Boston asked lazily. His aide handed him tissues and cold cream. Boston dabbed the Kleenex and smeared makeup from his face. She asked me what I thought, and I said it was too loud, I said. Please, laughed once, sharply. I smiled. It was quite amusing, she said that you were in good form. She said I should not be so tight-arsed. Tight-arsed? Boston said, raising his eyebrows. Fine wrinkles had appeared beneath the grease paint. She said that? She said we Muslims were afraid of modern life, of new experience. Of course I told her that this wasn't true. Then she gave me this. I reached into one of the pockets of my vest and pulled a flat packet of aluminum foil. Marjorie Kale gave you cocaine? Boston asked. Wyoming Flake, I said. She said she has friends who grow it in the Rocky Mountains. I opened the packet, exposing a little mound of white powder. I saw her use some. I think it will help my jet lag. I pulled my chair closer to the bedside phone table. I shook the packet out with much care upon the shining mahogany surface. The tiny crystals glittered. It was finely chopped. I opened my wallet and removed a crisp thousand-dollar bill. The actor-president smiled benignly. Would this be appropriate?
3: Tom does not do drugs,
2: said Plisetskaya too quickly.
0: Ever do coke before?
2: Boston asked. He threw a wadded tissue to the floor. I hope I'm not offending you, I said. This is Miami, isn't it? This is America. I began rolling the bill clumsily.
3: We are not impressed,
2: said police at sternly. She ground out her cigarette.
3: You are being a rube, Charlie, a hick from the NICs.
2: There is a lot of it, I said, allowing doubt to creep into my voice. I reached into my pocket, then divided the pile in half with the sharp edges of a developed slide. I arranged the lines neatly. They were several centimeters long. I sat back in the chair. You think it's a bad idea? I admit this is new to me. I paused. I have drunk wine several times, though the Koran forbids it. One of the secretaries laughed. Sorry, she said.
3: He drinks wine. That's cute.
2: I sat and watched Temptation dig into Boston. Please, said I shook her head. Kale's cocaine, Boston mused. Man. We watched the lines together for several seconds, he and I. I did not mean to be trouble, I said. I can throw it away. Never mind, Vale, Boston said.
0: Russian's chain smoke.
2: He slid across the bed. I bent quickly and sniffed. I leaned back, touching my nose. The cocaine quickly numbed it. I handed the paper tube to Boston. It was done in a moment. We sat back, our eyes watering. Oh, I said, "Drug seeping through tissue. This is excellent. It's good toot, Boston agreed. Looks like you get an extended interview. We talked through the rest of the night, he and I. My story is almost over. From where I sit to write this, I can hear the sound of Boston's music pouring from the crude speakers of a tape pirate in the bazaar. There is no doubt in my mind that Boston is a great man. I accompanied the tour to Philadelphia. I spoke to Boston several times during the tour, though never again with the first fine rapport of the drug. We parted as friends and I spoke well of him in my article for al-Haram. I did not hide what he was. I did not hide his threat, but I did not malign him. We see things differently, but he is a man, a child of God like all of us. His music even saw a brief flurry of popularity in Cairo after the article. Children listen to it, and then turn to other things, as children will. They like the sound, they dance, but the words mean nothing to them. The sounds, the thoughts, the feelings are alien. This is the Dar al-Harb, the land of peace. We have peeled the hands of the West from our throat. We draw breath again under God's sky. Our caliph is a good man, and I am proud to serve him. He reigns, he does not rule. Learned men debate in the Majlis, not squabbling like politicians, but seeking truth in dignity. We have the world's respect. We have earned it, for we paid the martyr's price. We Muslims are one in five in all the world, and as long as ignorance of God persists, there will always be the struggle, the jihad. It is a proud thing to be one of the caliph's mujahideen. It is not that we value our lives lightly, but that we value God more. Some call us backward, reactionary. I laughed at that when I carried the powder. It had the subtlest of poisons, a living virus. It is a tiny thing, bred in secret labs, and in itself does no harm. But it spreads throughout the body, and it bleeds out a chemical, a faint but potent trace. "'that carries the wrath of cancer. "'The West can do much with cancer these days, "'and a wealthy man like Boston can buy much treatment. "'They may cure the first attack or the second, "'but within five years he will surely be dead. "'People will mourn his loss. "'Perhaps they will put his image on a stamp "'as they did for Bob Marley. "'Marley, who also died of systemic cancer, "'whether by the hand of God or man.' Only Allah knows. I have taken the life of a great man. Entrapping him, I took my own life as well. But that means nothing. I am no one. I am not even Sayyid Qutb, the martyr and theorist of resurgence. Though I took that great man's name as cover. I meant only respect and believe I have not shamed his memory. I do not plan to wait for the disease. The struggle continues in the Muslim lands of what was once the Soviet Union. There the believers ride in holy jihad, freeing their ancient lands from the talons of Marxist atheism. Secretly we send them carbines, rockets, mortars, and nameless men. I shall be one of them. When I meet death, my grave will be nameless also. But nothing is nameless to God. God is great, men are mortal and heir. If I have done wrong, let the judge of men decide Before his will, as always, I submit
1: There you go, what about that story? Ho ho, tell us what you think, don't forget, We are Creative Commons, share and share alike Hope you liked it, tell us what you th- thought of it don't go, you know, selling this. It's the work of Bruce Sterling, and he wouldn't be too happy, and neither would we. So, I will see you again for an audio story. Just like to say, good night from me.
0: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal?
2: Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next
3: exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation of Procedure initiated.
0: Shuttle set for wash. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.